player one, welcome to the Gaming History Club. My name is Gabby. Hello, and I'm JP. We're really excited to have you here, player one. We're going to be talking about a type of game that is very close to our hearts and I think represents some of the very best that gaming has to offer. This is the history of point and click games. Point-and-click games are actually a subgenre of adventure games, right? Yeah, which came to a surprise for me, really, researching adventure games, point-and-click games. I just thought point-and-click games are point-and-click games. Little did I know, they fall very neatly right into the middle of the timeline of adventure games as a whole. It makes sense if you know it, or if you just spend more than five seconds thinking about it, something yeah. which I just... <laughs> don't do apparently but yeah it's just very neatly inside of the adventure game genre as a whole yeah. yeah and during our research we also found out that the term adventure games itself has been misapplied and misunderstood so do you want to let us know quickly what makes an adventure game an adventure game yeah so let's talk about the individual components of an adventure game and what actually defines them as a genre so you as the player assume control of a protagonist inside of a narrative story, keyword narrative story or keywords narrative stories, and the story is primarily driven by exploration and problem solving. That usually uh, takes shape in the form of using objects that you find in the game world, keeping them in your inventory, combining those items together in order to make new items which you can then use elsewhere in the world, and it also usually features heavy dialogue with other non-player characters, uh, usually something that is called a conversation tree because the conversation can go sometimes down different routes. Yeah, uh, it but, has branches basically. Yeah, and sometimes you can just choose what you want to talk first about, that kind of a deal. A lot of the confusion comes from the fact that a lot of games were labeled as action-adventure games, and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense nowadays I don't think calling something an action adventure game like what is that so action games are way different action games they focus on combat mm -hmm. and the gameplay usually revolves around your reaction times and your skill as a player how quickly can you move the mouse to point at someone and then click to shoot yeah that is a classy action game type of thing to do right but obviously adventure games they have very little combat and most of the time none at all that is completely absent from adventure games there is conflict but not combat in that kind of sense yeah i guess the focus is more on the character development or the story themselves and not the main focus of the gameplay and in terms of yes combat precisely they're also obviously not traditional puzzle games. Mm -hmm. So traditional puzzle games, they use logic-based puzzles. If you ever played a game where there's like a small mini game, such as like maybe Fallout, where you have to do like a lock picking. Okay, that's a bad example, but like the hacking, yeah? Yeah. So, so that is a logic puzzle because it's all in the confines of that mini game. That's true. Right? Mm -hmm. It's different from the types of puzzles that adventure games have, which we'll touch on in just uh, a quick minute. What else are they not? So they're also not role-playing games, mm -hmm. even though 
RPGs have a lot of story and they're really packed full of story and also the character-driven development. You know, they have very full characters with a lot of backstory and the way they interact with each other. But where they differ from RPGs is that RPGs have a lot of number systems. So you've got health points, uh, magic points, skill points to level up, etc., yeah. etc. Et Sometimes you have like a internal economy. Actually, I think a lot of the times you have an internal economy. So, you know, you, you defeat an enemy and you get 200 Pokemon credits that you can then use to yeah buy a Pokeball, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, So true. they're also not role-playing games. And lastly, they're also not visual novels, which are super highly popular in Japan. If you don't know what a visual novel is, you may have seen like a dating sim game kind of a deal. They're kind of like that, where there's just a static background in the picture that shows you where you are. Then you've got like NPC mm-hmm. in the foreground, usually in anime art. And you've got a whole lot of conversation going on. You can choose what to say. And that's that's it, basically. That's that's a visual novel. Um, so they're also not that. So now that we've talked about what adventure games are not, let's delve a little bit deeper into the components of adventure games and what makes them what they are. To come back to the puzzles that I wanted to mention. So to use sophisticated English, the types of reasoning that you use is conceptual reasoning and lateral thinking. Uh, That just means thinking outside of the box. So I've got a good example in a point-and-click game that I used to play as a kid called Urban Runner. You are given a letter inside of an envelope and you have the task of reading the contents of that letter without making the envelope look like uh, you've just opened it, basically, right? right? You got to be real sneaky about it, okay? So the way you do it is you boil some water in a kettle And then the character will uh, use the steam from the kettle to loosen up the glue on the envelope. Ah, interesting. Okay. And then you can open the envelope, take the letter out, read it, put it back in and seal it again. And it looks like you've never opened it. And that was, that's an example of, of how to use that kind of lateral thinking, basically. You will need some real life knowledge a lot of the time in order to solve some of these puzzles. But this is a really nice example because this one actually makes sense yeah okay a lot of them don't a a lot of (laughs) a lot of adventure games the the puzzles don't make sense but i mean of course they they can't be a hundred percent sensical otherwise you'll just get through the game way too quickly right that's true and many adventure games make use of inventory management system that can be used to store items collected in the environment you can select and use them on the environment or combine items together, like you mentioned before. So take the fabric with the stick to make a mop. That's kind of like Monkey Island stuff, oh, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not get that. <laughs> okay, sorry. And another one, a common tactic was to actually pixel hunt for items. Full Throttle had a really infamous example where you need to click a very specific point on a wall to kick it. And then I think there's a hole that you can walk through. Oh, no. Yeah, that, that one was an infamous pixel hunting example. But yeah, more than any other genre, adventure games depend on their story and setting to create a compelling single player experience. They are typically set in an immersive environment, 
often a fantasy world, but it can be any type of world as long as it really captures your imagination. So mm -hmm. uh, cyberpunk, for example, I love a good cyberpunk world. Absolutely love it. But you can also have a really realistic setting. So if you're going for like a murder mystery or, yep. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Comedy is a massive, huge theme in adventure games. And comedy has always existed as a theme inside of adventure games. It was more of a revolution when sometimes they didn't do that as a matter of fact. Since adventure games are driven by storytelling and character development, a lot of the tools that they use come from uh, literary conventions. So, uh, you know, the way books are written, mm -hmm. basically. The player often goes off on a quest or is required to unravel some sort of mystery or a situation about which he knows very little about. Yeah, and these types of mysterious stories allow designers to get around what Ernest W. Adams called the problem of amnesia, where the player controls the protagonist but must start the game without their knowledge and experience. And as we briefly discussed earlier, they, they are very dialogue-heavy. Uh, adventure games have very strong storylines and there's a significant amount of dialogue in them usually. Sometimes they make effective use of recorded dialogue or narration from voice actors. And the genre is known for its tree structure of dialogue. So the game will often branch into different conversations. Sometimes that can have far-reaching consequences depending on the game as well. The primary goal of an adventure game is to complete the quest that you've embarked upon. Quite naturally, it sounds like these days, but hey, you know, back then, a lot of the time your goal was to hit the ball with your paddle, you know, or just, you know, get high score. And I think that's why nowadays it sounds like, uh, duh, but yeah, back then it wasn't always quite that way. There's also a way to die in a lot of the early adventure games, less so in the later adventure games, and we'll be discussing why and how that happened as well. So, to learn about how point-and-click games were born, let's talk about the history of adventure games very briefly. But we do have to go into the history, just like with the arcade. You know, sometimes you go go back to World War II first, and uh, we'll be doing a very similar thing here. Let's touch upon what is necessary to get us to the point-and-click franchise. Yeah, and it all started with Will Crowther and his wife, at that time, Patricia. They caved and explored the longest cave system in the world which is called Mammoth Cave, located in Kentucky. As part of the Cave Research Foundation in the 70s, Patricia led the expedition that found a connection between Mammoth Cave and the larger Flint Ridge Cave system. In addition to caving, the pair produced vector map surveys of the cave itself, which they transcribed from what they called Muddy Little Bug into a teleprinter terminal at their house that was connected to a PDP-10 mainframe computer where Will worked. These maps were some of the earliest computer-drawn maps of caves. That is so interesting, right? I was looking into it. How did adventure games start? And you start reading and you're like, oh my god, these are like real adventurers. Yeah, that's true. They caved and explored and actually make maps. Yeah, right. Goodness me, that is fascinating, right? Will and Patricia divorced in 1975 and then Will stopped caving for the Cave Research Foundation. Due to this, he had a lot of more time to spare, and that mixed with missing his daughters very much. He was looking for a way to connect with them, 
So what he would do is uh, he worked at the time for BBN, which stands for Bolt, Baranek, and Newman. So he worked on the uh, ARPANET. He was de helping develop the ARPANET. And the ARPANET is a network of computers. Think of it as a precursor to the internet, okay? Uh, he combined those memories that he made when he was caving with elements of Dungeons and Dragons from his experiences playing with his friends. And he decided to make a game based around those two things. Yes, and the players would read a description of their location provided by the computer acting as narrator of the game. So you as the player will choose what to do next by typing comments, such as enter building, or go north, or if you want to get an inventory, for example, that's like in the room, you can type get lamp. Basically using natural language input to control the game with his daughter in mind, because it's a lot more simplified and people can just type it and understand it easily. Without being a technical person, yeah. Exactly. So that was called a text parser. So that enables the language between what the human wants to type into the computer and the computer understanding what you actually want to do. So your text parser might include the fact that a stone and a rock mm -hmm. is the same thing. So if you say pick up stone or pick up rock, it would understand that that is what you're actually trying to do. So you can imagine it it removes a lot of the guessing in a, in a game that is just solely made around text, right? So if the narrator says at the beginning of the screen, you walk into a cave, you notice something next to your feet, hard and cold. What do you want to do with it? This is a bad example. This wouldn't actually happen <laughs> like this. This is really silly. But, you know, if you then put pick up rock and it doesn't work, um, you're like, okay, that must not be what I'm supposed to do. But actually you were like so close. You just said rock instead of stone. So it didn't work. So it gets rid of that whole drama. Like, so a clever text parser. Yeah. What I found really interesting about this text-based game is that you can actually get lost. Although, if you decide to draw a map, it is actually heavily inspired by the real Mammoth Cave map that he has in that computer. Cool. Nice, yeah. Uh, this first game, I mean, uh, sorry guys, we will tell you what this game was called. We are hyping it up a lot right now, I know. The game was actually played using a teleprinter, which is, um, yeah, for the younger demographic, which definitely includes me as well, guys. Uh, it's, it's kind of like a typewriter plus fax machine. That's the best way I could think of to describe what it is. They were commonly referred to as teletypes because teletypes uh, or teletype corporation was the most famous company to make some of these teleprinters. But yeah, that's all teleprinter is. So yeah, you wouldn't even have a uh, monitor <laughs> to feed back. It would come out in a printer uh, telling you what's happening in the game. The game did not have an explicit title in it just yet. If you started the game, all it would say is, Welcome to adventure. Ooh. So during one of Will's vacations, other people actually found the game on the network since he was using the PDP uh, mainframe that we talked about, right? In order to get the game to run. Uh, so a few people saw it and eventually one of them called Don Wood found it at Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory who would then reach out to Will and they would work together to distribute the game commercially. And at this stage, now they actually settled on a name as well for the very first adventure game and very first text adventure game called Colossal Cave Adventure. And that is the origins of the very first text adventure game. 
text adventure set the foundation for the adventure genre as a whole, such as focus on the story and exploration, inventory management, light humor stone, and also the use of text parsers as you mentioned before. They would remain the default method of controlling adventure games for another decade. That's right. It would still be a while until we get to pointing and clicking our way through adventure games. Researching text adventures was absolutely delightful, but we need to cut this short because we're not even getting into pointing and clicking yet. So we need to say bye to text adventure games for now, but let us know if this is something you would like us to cover in the future because you know what, we would love to cover this topic. Yeah, we started looking at a documentary about text adventures and we had to stop ourselves there as well because we were really getting a little bit lost in it. It has a really fantastical, magical history to it. Some very interesting people involved. So maybe we'll revisit text adventures again at a later point in time. So we're still not gonna go quite into pointing and clicking just yet. Let's introduce some graphics first, shall we, Gabby? Yeah, we are going to introduce graphics to the adventure games. So no longer adventure games, just text on your screen. In 1979, husband and wife duo Roberta and Ken Williams founded Online Systems. Ken was a programmer working at IBM and founded Online Systems to create business software for the TRS-80 and Apple II computers. Ken brought a teletype terminal home one day in 79, and while looking through it, he found Colossal Cave Adventure. Hey, our old friend. I know. He encouraged his wife Roberta to join him playing the game, which must have got her hooked because soon after that, he brought an Apple II computer to their home and she played through more text adventure games. And she realized that with the Apple II's graphic capability, she could enhance the text adventure game experience. That's right. So Roberta designs Mystery House in 1980 with the help of her husband Ken doing a little bit of the programming. The game is still a text adventure in many ways. The only difference now is that we've got some simple vector graphics that are at the top of the screen to allow the player to use less of his own imagination and see some things on the screen now to help him, you know, understand the, the story, I suppose. Sierra continued to make very similar games for a while. They were part of a series called the High Res Adventure series. They actually created seven games between 1980 and 1983. The sequel to Mystery House, which is called Wizard and the Princess, that was the first adventure game to support color graphics. So the vector graphics, they do look very simple, and if I'm being brutally honest, kind of primitive by today's standards, but that is not their fault. That is very much just the graphical limitation mm -hmm. at the time. If we take a look at the Apple II, display had a resolution of 280 by 192 and there was a whole six colors available for it right but just to explain how genius the husband and wife duo are can actually exploited a method that was known as differing where if you put different colors very close together they would actually create a sort of bleeding effect on the display and it would look like a different color and if you exploited that you would actually have a color palette of 21. The co-founding couple were encouraged to switch their focus now from consulting to game development. I'm not surprised. The graphic adventure was born along with its most influential developer. 
Mystery House was commercially successful and they made $167,000 from the Mystery House adventure game. So, switching from consulting to game development, online systems decided, hey, we should probably rename ourselves to something a little bit more fancy and gamey, right? <laughs> I imagine that's what was happening in their minds, but that's not the official story. But okay. any hosel, in 1982, they decided to rename themselves to Sierra Online. The Sierra name was taken from the Sierra Nevada mountain range. That's because they were close by to it when they moved. So they moved to Oakhurst. And the very famous logo of Sierra, that's based on the Half Dome Mountain, it's called. I actually looked up the picture. It looks exactly like the Sierra logo. It was like fantastic actually looking at it. By early 1984, a company that's known as InfoWorld estimated that Sierra was the world's 12th largest microcomputer software company with $12.5 million in 1983 sales. That was just to give you an idea that, yes, yeah, Sierra was very quickly becoming very successful commercially with these adventure games they're making. They were actually so successful that IBM commissioned them to showcase the capabilities for one of their upcoming computers called the PC Junior. Both Sierra and IBM decided, you know what, we should actually have animations though in, mm. in this new upcoming game to showcase the PC Junior. So Roberta led a team of six designers and developers to create this new game. And they were using a new engine that they made called AGI, which is the Adventure Game Interpreter, which is what enabled them to actually have animations. And instead of using those crude primitive vector graphics, they were going to use bitmap, which is just pixel graphics instead of vector. The company would continue to use AGI, by the way, in 14 of their games between 84 and 89 before later replacing it, but we'll get to that. So it's 1984 and the game that they released for the PC Junior was King's Quest. Very famous King's Quest, very, very successful game. It puts Sierra a lot more on the map than Mystery House did. King's Quest is the official start for me personally in adventure games because it's not just a solid block picture. You actually got to move the character around. But you're still using the keyboard, by the way. So you're telling him, go left, pick up stone. It still works like that. You're still not pointing and clicking, but we've got animated graphics happening now. Uh, so the PC Junior didn't do too well. So at first, neither did King's Quest. But once King's Quest got ported to other computing platforms, it started making a real success for Sierra. And Sierra would eventually sell half a million copies of King's Quest. So Sierra pioneered the graphic adventure game genre, which would evolve to what becomes point-and-click games right. that we want to talk about, releasing several big-name titles in the genre, such as what you mentioned before, King's Quest, Space Quest, Police Quest. Why is there a lot of quests? Yeah, Quest for Glory. Quest for Glory, yeah, yeah. that's true. And then Gabriel Knight. Oh, Gabriel, but, but that's a brilliant game. Gabriel Knight is amazing. Yeah, and... Actually, I didn't know, but you've put it in a note that they're also the original publisher of Valve's Half-Life series. Yeah, it was just really interesting for me because I almost completely forgot about it. But now in hindsight, I shouldn't have opened that can of worms because it turns out CIO actually made a lot of non-adventure games too down the line. So now in 1985 and throughout the next decade, graphical adventure games were considered to be really popular in the gaming market. 
especially for, computers. Yeah, yeah, it was for PC. It was the most thing to have for computers because, well, couldn't do much else with a computer that was better than graphical adventure games. I mean, you couldn't watch a movie just yet on a computer, could you? Yeah, that's true. But Sierra wasn't alone. Sierra was only one of the two big juggernauts in the adventure games genre. We will revisit Sierra games again later, but for now, we need to move on because up to this point, we still use the keyboard. We still type. We're not even pointing and clicking yet. No, we still go left, get lump. Pick up stone. <laughs> pick up stone. Kill dragon bear hands. I know. We need to move on. So, shall we? So let's talk about point and click adventure games. But hey, what do we need to point and click at things, Gabby? We need mouse. That's right. So while the first prototype for mouse was actually made in 1964 by Douglas Engelbart at the Stanford Research Institute, however, it wasn't until 1984 when Apple released the Macintosh where you would actually receive a graphical user interface and also a mouse by default, you know, when you yeah, buy the computer. Standard, yeah. yeah, it was actually relatively affordable now to, to get one of these babies. So, I mean, it was priced at $2,500. That was the introductory price. That's adjusted for inflation, $7,000. So, yeah, I mean, I would probably rather have bought a car, but I mean, yeah, technically that's probably achievable for some households now. So, first point-and-click adventure game ever to come out, you may have never heard about before, there blips in history a little bit actually. Kind of interesting how they came to be and that they even existed, if I'm being honest. The first one is Enchanted Scepters. That was released by a company called Silicon Beach Software, and that came out for the Apple Macintosh in the same year, 1984. It is the first known instance where you control an adventure game by use of a mouse. But it wasn't a full use of mouse. I mean, you could use the mouse fully, but there were certain parts of the game where you definitely had to type something in still. It is a fantasy game, just like it sounds. So you are Saber, who is an apprentice of the great old wizard Elrond, and you are tasked with finding four scepters to defeat the evil Herx. So what can you imagine the point-and-click interface to be like? Because this isn't Sierra or the other juggernaut that we haven't talked about yet. Most people are familiar with that template of point-and-click games. So if you've never used a Mac on Apple back in the day, it's very similar where at the top of your windows, top left, you got file, edit, view, settings, help, and all of that shebang. At the top there, you will find the different commands, verbs that you can give the game. So go north would be selectable with your mouse now. There was a graphical interface, so just a picture of the location that you're in. Still looked very primitive, if I'm being honest. Black and white, it definitely didn't look as nice as um, some of the Sierra games coming out, so it was taking a step back, if I'm being quite honest, from things like King's Quest. There wasn't even any color to Enchanted Scepters. Also, there's some RPG elements in this game. I think you had spiritual points and health points. But let's talk about a point-and-click game that came out the following year, in 1985, because this is the first time where we can fully control the game from start to finish using only the mouse. Yeah, it was created for the Macintosh. Um, the game is called Deja Vu, made by Icom Simulations. The game was actually part of the MacVenture series. The game is the hardball detective adventure set in Chicago during the winter of 1941. Your character is called Ace, a retired boxer working as a private eye that wakes up in a bathroom stall unable to remember his identity. 
Again, the problem of Amnesia. Yes. There is a time limit to complete the game, and the game required the player to use lateral thinking often. The plot is well told and has dry humor. One could admire the quality of this chair for hours on end. The narrator replies dryly when checking out a random piece of furniture. This table has four legs. He astutely observes in another. That is so dry. Incredibly dry. But it's a hard-boiled detective adventure. What do you expect, really? Yeah, I mean, how else are you going to sneak some humor in here that matches the theme? I, I think it makes sense. In the game, there are multiple windows. The main window shows the world where you can see all of the graphic, so you can see the room, you can see the world of the game. And there's also an inventory window that can be used to click and drag objects from the world into. Yep. And a window containing verbs like examine, open, speak, hit, and a primitive map showing where exits are located in the current area. The game and others in MacVenture series were ported to several other computers and consoles. Um, I believe it was NES? Yeah, it was ported to the NES, yeah. A lot of the MacVenture games actually got ported on the NES. Uh, I think they had one called Shadowgate? Mm -hmm. Shadow Gun? That one was uh, quite popular, I think, on the NES. So that's actually a MacVenture game too. But yeah, basically Enchanted Septus and Deja Vu, uh, no one really speaks much about them. And it's kind of interesting how they even popped up out of nowhere because you've got text adventures, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Colossal Cave, then loads of, uh, you know, without saying this in a bad way, but copycats and, you, you know, you get like Zorg and all the other big names. And then you got Sierra, graphic adventure games, mm -hmm. right? And then you'd think, oh, they immediately then come up with point and click. But there's this brief two-year window here where these guys were ahead of the game, actually. But with Deja Vu, though, we finally absolve the needing of keyboard. You can actually use the mouse only Yeah. to pointing and clicking. Finally. Finally. Alongside Sierra, there was another juggernaut, as I mentioned before, in the point and click game genre. So there was also Lucasfilm's game later known as LucasArts. Yeah, so let's see what LucasArts was doing. Unfortunately, their first game was not a point-and-click game, it was still a graphic adventure game. The game was called Labyrinth and released in 1986, designed and programmed by David Fox. It was based on the musical fantasy movie of the same name, which had David Bowie in it. David Fox envisioned an adventure game tie-in, as this uh, Labyrinth movie was one of Lucasfilm's films. But David Fox didn't like how the adventure game genre at the time, with graphic adventures, uh, still relied heavily on text passes and syntax guessing that we were talking about earlier, especially compared to the Sierra games at the time, right? The way that David Fox wanted to solve the issue with text passes and syntax guessing is by inventing a word wheel system. You now have a selection of two sets of words, depending on what location you're in inside of the game. So if you go into a room with a character named Jareth in there, for example, which is a real name from the movie and the game, one of your first word sets would have all the verbs that you can use, and the second set would have all the nouns that you can use. So you could have in the first neck, get, hit, or congratulate, and then the second one, stone, Jareth, lamp. And that's basically how the game would work. So technically you can now just use the key arrows and go about the game that way. You didn't have to type everything in and you didn't have to guess anything. All the possible options are already laid out in front of you now. 
at the beginning of the game, the player enters their name, whether they're male or female, and also their favorite color. And the last two fields determine the appearance of your character then. So you would have your favorite color shirt on and you'd be either male or female, depending on what you chose. The game starts and it's actually really cool the way it starts because I wish Sierra would have done this for Mystery House or King's Quest, but you start the game and it starts off as a text adventure and there's no graphics just yet. And you play the game for a little bit and you end up in this movie theater and then all of a sudden the curtains open with graphics and it turns out, oh no, you're actually playing a graphic adventure game. Surprise! That, ah, that must have been really cool actually to play though, because if you didn't know to expect that, that would have been a really nice surprise. Like, ooh, it's actually got graphics. Well, let's talk about LucasArts next game, which was a point and click game. So sorry that I had to throw Spanner in the works first for the little pit stuff, but I feel like, hey, if it's, you know, just the one game that they made, which was still graphic adventure, I, I feel like I need to shout it out at least. Relevant. Yeah, come on, right? But hey, so let's talk about more point and click games finally. We're gonna stay here for a while now, guys. Stay with me, okay? So LucasArts next adventure game was programmed again with the help of David Fox, but it was designed by Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick, two employees that quickly became friends due to their shared tastes, especially in B-horror movies. And it was actually B-horror movies that inspired the theme that they would like to roll with for the game that they were employed to design. So they wanted to combine those horror movie cliches with comedy, right? So they knew the theme that they wanted to make, but they weren't quite sure what kind of genre the game in just yet. Even though, yeah, LucasArts made Labyrinth, they were given full creative freedom. So uh, Ron actually goes off to Christmas holidays, visiting some relatives, and he finds his cousin playing King's Quest. He was already familiar and a fan of text adventure games, but he wasn't ever exposed to graphic adventures yet at the time, and, and he decided, hmm, why don't I take some time during my holiday and familiarize myself with the genre? And he did. He goes back to Gary and proposes using a adventure game as a genre to make Maniac Mansion in. And he goes, yeah, cool, let's do it. So they both worked on the game, but they quickly realized that using traditional programming methods to create this game would be very cumbersome and just too time intensive. He comes up with the scum engine. Uh, so that stands for Script Creation Utility for Manic Mansion. And the Scum engine uh, improved massively on the word wheel mechanics that was established in Labyrinth because now the verbs would actually just be at the bottom of the screen and you could just point at them and click on them and then click again on any point of the screen to use that verb. So, you know, you had the word look on the bottom of the screen and then you use that on any part of the screen and you would then look at it. Yeah, straightforward, right? Straightforward for us, but this is now definitely cemented and implemented the template. And when we talk about point-and-click games, especially the older point-and-click games, this is the image that you probably have in your head, maybe Monkey Island or Day of the Tentacle, and you're thinking, yeah, and there's a box at the bottom of the verb. So Maniac Mansion was a pivotal game in point-and-click games. Let's talk a tiny bit about the game itself. The game follows a teenage protagonist called Dave. You're out to save your girlfriend Sandy from a mad scientist whose mind has been taken over by a sentient meteor. Yeah, very straightforward plot. Dave has six friends and you can select two of those friends to take with you on your quest journey. The game has multiple endings 
and the multiple endings depend on which of the two characters you choose, which of them survive, and what achievements you achieve with your team as you go along in the game. The game ends if all characters die. Gilbert admitted to making some mistakes in the game, so he did include some no-win situations, which he was not a fan of, and he also gave an example of how the game sometimes relies on timers to trigger certain events or cutscenes, rather than where the player goes to. Oh, that can be awkward. Yeah, and it did actually cause some awkward situations. By the way, I mentioned cutscenes. Did you know Ron Gilbert coined the term cutscene? No, I didn't. Yeah, cool, huh? And Maniac Mansion was pivotal for adventure games because it's so big. Also now, Sierra realized that they've got a competitor by this time. Oh yeah. Because up until now, the adventure games genre must be just full of Sierra games. They had a bit of a monopoly, you might say, up until LucasArts came along. Yeah, and LucasArts would continue to release the well-known titles, as you mentioned before, such as Monkey Island, Loom, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, Summon Max Hit the Road, Full Throttle, you already mentioned that game before as well. I did, I did. Yeah, the pixel hunting Yeah. example, yeah. <laughs> and also Grim Fandango. That's right. Now that we've introduced both of the pillars of point-and-click games, both Sierra and LucasArts, let's discuss some of their stylistic differences and how they actually develop. Yeah, that's right. So I already mentioned a little bit about Ron Gilbert's philosophy and how he likes his point-and-click games to be, right? So... Uh, Lucas Arms definitely have a heavier focus on comedy, avoiding fail states. So meaning that, for example, in a Sierra game, you might not pick up a certain item or do a certain action. You leave that area. You will need an item from an area that you cannot go back to. So now your only option left is to reload the game from a different save point, for example. He did not like that at all. Yeah, and Ron Gilbert actually quoted this. As the story builds, we are pulled into the game and leave the real world behind. As designers, our job is to keep people in this state for as long as possible. Every time the player has to restore a saved game or pound his head on the desk in frustration, the suspension of disbelief is gone. At this time, he is most likely to shut off the computer and go watch TV, at which point we all have lost. I think that really proved how LucasArts developed, actually. Yeah, so I was roaming the internet and seeing what is the general consensus. So Sierra versus LucasArts style of making games. And uh, there's definitely people in both camps. I wondered at first, is it a little bit to do with just the type of game you're used to? So I'm definitely more used to the LucasArts style because, well, Sierra ended up also making games a little bit more like that anyway or at least to the extent where if you were going to die, it was made a little bit more clear, like foreshadowed. Yeah. That like, if you're going to do this, yeah, you're going to have to restart the game. But you know what? People uh, are very different opinions, actually. The camp is pretty well split because you, you could argue that Sierra provided a little bit more of a thrill for a type of game where there is no combat. So... To, to have the possibility of death at least provided a tiny bit of a thrill-seek still. Yeah, because I think their focus was more on the puzzle element more than the narrative or the character arc. 
Yeah, LucasArts seem to have really incorporated more of the movie side of the company. Especially, you, you take a look at a lot of the Sierra plots, a lot of the early graphic adventures. Let, let's take Leisure Suit Larry. You know what your quest is? Your quest is to find romance, and that is it. And that is all you know about the game and how to progress. It's not some of the, the other games, you know, Monkey Island, where it's like reading a book in a lot of ways. It's so heavy on narrative. Later on, Sierra also adopted that point-and-click style, replacing their engine, what you called before... Um, AGI? I, yeah, AGI. Yeah. And they replaced it with SCI, Sierra Creation Interpreter. So they remade older games and re-released with higher-resolution graphics. Better sound, new point-and-click interface, basically, and tried to compete with these new titles that LucasArts also came up with. Yeah. The first game to use the SCI Interpreter was King's Quest IV, an absolutely huge PC game, and it was released back in September 1988. It came on nine 360k discs. I mean, that's a lot of discs. Yeah, I think that was the most for any PC game of the time, right? Yeah, that's true. So yeah, developers, they were looking for better ways to improve the games even beyond the point-and-click template as set by LucasArts and adopted by Sierra. But what else can you do, really? Well, you can get rid of the verb window as a whole and just allow for the player to interact more directly with the game and get rid of anything that isn't showing the world or the characters. Just have full screen, the entire thing is part of the story, right? One of the early examples where LucasArts did this is in uh, Summon Max at the Road in 1993. Mm -hmm. They got rid of the verb window. And now with your cursor, with your mouse cursor, I believe your left click would be to carry out action. And the action that was at disposal to you, you could change with the right mouse button. So you could swap between, I think, look, talk, use and walk. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that completely got rid of the entire need for verb windows. The inventory was also replaced. So instead of always having it visible at the bottom, you'd have like a representation of like a bug and you click on that and then your big inventory screen pops up. Yeah. So again, allowing for more space to be used. Also in uh, Summer Max, actually, something which I really like, the dialogue was changed. So instead of seeing what you would reply with, you were given like a bit of a hint in terms of like a picture as to what kind of reply you're going to give. So you still have the option of going with, I want to say something akin to this or that, but it wouldn't ruin the punchline when the narrator actually or the voice actor says the line. Oh, right. So you mean the dialogue selection is just icons? Yeah, that you pick? Okay. You, you'd have to guess a little bit what they might say. But that's great because you, you want to hear the, the funny punchline from the voice actor. Yeah. You know, otherwise, I, I get that too. Like you read the joke and then when you hear it, it's almost like you're forcing yourself to laugh again. Also, it's very uh, quotable, that game, Sam and Max. I think out of the blue, Sam says, for no reason at all, it'll just happen out of nowhere. My mind is a swirling miasma of scintillating thoughts and turgid ideas. I would never expect that to come up in a video game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what happened next in the point-and-click world? So yeah, we went from verb windows to context-based interactions, allowing more screen space. And the next thing that happened in point-and-click games was the CD revolution that took the world by storm back then. Point-and-click games actually very much supported the adoption for the CD-ROM 
with computers as well. CD-ROMs, they became mostly popular in the early to mid-90s. They existed for a fair bit before then for the audio formats as actual audio CDs, but the computers adopted them a little bit later than that, actually. CDs were a gift and a curse for point-and-click games. We'll discuss why they were a gift first, though. So, you got the CD format, so let's look at it this way, okay? A 3.5-inch floppy disk could hold, I think, 1.44 megabytes. A CD could hold 700 megabytes. So you've got 486 times the amount of storage available now. And what could you pack into that? Well, you can put in 3D graphics, you can put in voice actors, yeah. um, you could put in just more detailed high resolution images and full motion video, as a matter of fact. Yeah, and you don't actually need nine discs anymore for King's Quest Four. <laughs> no, no, you would need it now for Phantasmagoria instead, but we'll talk about that later. Full motion video is especially interesting because, I mean, you couldn't watch a DVD. Uh, it didn't exist on your computer back then. I don't think computers in general were able to like play like a whole video either, but they could provide you with a point and click game, full motion video enabled, which would probably be the closest thing you could get to a true cinema experience sat in front of your computer at the time. And this was a big reason point and click games were really, really heavily popular as well now. It was actually a point and click game that would help the CD-ROM really take off for PCs. It was the so-called killer app needed for people to bother actually getting a CD-ROM drive for their PC. Let's talk about this game. It was Myst. So Myst was designed by the Miller brothers Robin and Brandt, developed by Cyan Worlds and released in 1993. It incorporates pre-rendered 3D graphics as the player traverses a first-person journey through an interactive world. The player is provided with very little backstory at the beginning of the game and there's no obvious goals or objectives laid out for you, you're just gonna have to kind of go start exploring and figure out what's going on. There's also no obvious enemies, there's no physical violence, there's no time limit to complete the game, there's no threat of dying at any point. The game just kind of unfolds at its own pace and it's solved through a combination of patience, observation and logical thinking. Uh, yeah, it's quite different actually than the LucasArts and Sierra formula. Very little in terms of spoon feeding the player now, you just kind of go off and go, yeah, go, do your thing, shoot. Mist was a huge critical and commercial success, and uh, critics really applauded the ability of the game to immerse players in this fictional world. A lot of places considered to be one of the best video games ever made. It sold 6 million copies, and that was the best-selling computer game until 2002, actually, until The Sims pushed it off the top spot, so nine years. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Mist. Come on, why not? So, uh, Mist put players on a deserted island full of strange contraptions. You had no real knowledge about what was going on except the little that could be gathered from the environment. It was in the style of uh, you had to collect books that would then talk to you. It was people inside of them. Mist captured the imagination of players. It immersed them in this lavishly detailed, but yet at the same time very empty world. It was a never-before-seen mix of combination of real but then also dreamlike world design and it made the game seem like it was taking a huge leap forward. It was pre-rendered 3D graphics but then every time you clicked somewhere else to go there was like kind of zoomy animation of you walking through the world so it, it was kind of futuristic I mean for 1993 yeah definitely. 
Another early PC game that released exclusively on CD format that was made it quite big as well was called The Seventh Guest. The game received a great amount of press attention because it featured FMV, what you mentioned before, full motion video, and for its unprecedented amount of pre-rendered 3D graphics. Also, it has adult content. So the game was very successful with over 2 million copies sold. The seventh guest with Mist are the ones regarded as the killer app, as you mentioned before. Even Bill Gates called the seventh guest the new standard in interactive entertainment. Well, if Bill Gates says it, I mean, who are we to argue with him, really? I know, that's true. These two games really accelerated the sales of CD-ROM drives, basically. Yeah. Inevitably, copycat titles followed from Mist and Seventh Guest. We've got millions of PC owners now really invested into getting a CD-ROM drive themselves to play this new generation of adventure games. Despite the fact that some of these games were very linear and they were often... Not much more than glorified puzzle-solving exercises, but it also definitely made companies like Sierra and LucasArts now very much reevaluate the way that they were making games too. So um, uh, Mist came out in 1993 and Sam & Max, which I mentioned earlier, also came out in 1993. So we can see where they're already trying to, well, I mentioned context-based interactions. Let's get rid of the verb tile window. Let's not have the inventory open all of the time. Let's make more use of the space available to us. Yeah, more screen, please. Yes, yeah. streamlining the experience, if you will. So how was Sierra developing during all this time? LucasArts, they were carving out their own profitable niche, making cartoonish-like characters, bursting with funny one-liners. So their rival developer, Sierra Online, decided to take a somewhat different route with 1993's Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Fathers. It was a game designed and directed by Jane Jensen. Gabriel Knight had its moments of brevity, but was primarily focused on Gabriel's investigation of a series of grisly local murders for his new book. Despite a rather convoluted interface, the game was actually a commercial and critical success, and Sierra wisely used the storage potential offered by CD-ROMs to include full voice acting with Hollywood talents that included Tim Curry, Mark Hamill, and Michael Dawn. But there was a lot of FMV games coming out now, similar to how Mist and Seventh Guest were causing a lot of copycat titles. People were also really jumping on the FMV bandwagon right now. Tex Murphy had a game in its series, uh, Under a Killing Moon, that was released in 1994, mm -hmm. made by Access Software. The very next Gabriel Knight game would be an FMV game, one of my favorite games, actually. They also somehow managed to release, in the same year, Phantasmagoria. Uh, so Gabriel Knight 2 and Phantasmagoria both came out in 1995. I don't know how they managed to make games so quickly. And also X-Files from 1998, uh, also one of my childhood favorites, X-Files. Absolutely such love X-Files. Yeah, such a fun game. Oh, I made you play it with me, didn't I? I know, that's true. I love that. How else was the CD format being used? Let's take a look at what LucasArts was doing with CDs. In 1995, they've released Full Throttle that we talked about earlier, the really annoying pixel hunting story. Full Throttle took full advantage of the increased storage uh, provided by CDs. They were making some really fancy animated sequences. Sometimes it was pre-rendered backgrounds and vehicles that they had. 
again, they had full voice acting. Uh, Mark Hamill in the mix. Again, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, had a very lengthy storyline and was packed with very unique looking locations. And they even had a licensed soundtrack by an American rock band called The Gone Jackals. Full Throttle sold over a million units, and that was a very considerable success for LucasArts at the time. I guess it's not only in North America that all of these kind of games are developing. Let's go around the world a little bit. British developer Revolution Software released Beneath a Steel Sky in 1994 and also Broken Sword in 1996. Another British developer called Adventuresoft also released Simon the Sorcerer in 1993 and The Feeble Files in 1997. In Japan, they also have Konami, who released Snatcher back in 1988, and Polis in 1994. That's right, and as you may have guessed, if it's Konami, who specifically made these games? Hideo Kojima. That's right, yeah. Uh, you can even see one of the characters from Metal Gear Solid doing a cameo in Police Knots. What's interesting is how Kojima actually got inspired to create Polisnauts. It was basically influenced by news that captured his interest at that time. So it was a combination of public debate over organ transplantation and brain death injuries, and then also the rise of anti-Japanese sentiment after the release of the movie The Rising Sun at that time, and also influenced by space travels after the first Japanese person traveled to space in 1990, and many NASA documents about how space travel affects human body were published in Japan for the first time. So yeah, he mixed his interest on space with social issues, and that's how he came up with the idea of Polisnauts. By the mid-90s, unfortunately, point-and-click games start to lose their popularity with the mainstream now. We are seeing real-time 3D games coming out now, whereas point-and-click games are still struggling with becoming fully 3D, and they weren't always particularly successful becoming fully 3D experiences. We've got a PC market that's coming out now with new graphics cards, and a lot of visually appealing 3D titles are becoming the normal now, and they weren't special little things anymore. Like, it was common to have a really good-looking 3D game now. LucasArts was still supporting the adventure game genre. They released Curse of Monkey Island in 97, the last game to feature the Scum engine. The following year, in 98, they released Grim Fandango, which fully embraced 3D. It had pre-rendered 3D in terms of backgrounds, but then your character and the NPCs, they're in real-time 3D. Mm -hmm. That was a really dark, witty, absolutely hilarious game. It actually still often features in top 10 best point-and-click games of all time. It was very critically successful, but it underperformed commercially, and that's already a sign where the critics, the fans, absolutely love the game, but the sales numbers just aren't as high as you expect it to be. And that's where we see how point-and-click games are falling down as well. Not why, but, but how. The last time uh, LucasArts made a game was the following year again in 2000, sorry, two years after, in 2000 with Escape from Monkey Island. That was their last contribution to the genre, but it wasn't even a point-and-click game anymore either, so you move around in a 3D space, uh, you're not pointing and clicking, you're using your keyboard to go there yeah, and, and joystick. interact. Yeah. Or a joystick, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, and I guess Sierra actually encountered similar 
problem. 1998's King's Quest Mask of Eternity used polygon visuals, but they failed to recreate the commercial success of the games that they made previously. And by the end of the decade, Sierra had been sold to a larger firm and its original studio shuttered. Well, actually, they're still within the same name of company. I think it had little connection to, to the studio that was founded by Canon Roberta in 1979. For all intents and purposes, LucasArts and Sierra had, by the turn of the millennium, effectively walked away from the point-and-click adventure game genre. Yeah, so what was actually taking the limelight then away from point-and-click games? So it was different genres and just the technology catching up and benefiting over genres as well, like the CD, for example. So this is the curse aspect of it. So first-person shooters, for example, having started off with Wolfenstein, Doom, Duke Nukem 3D. By the late 90s, you could even have a really strong narrative in a first-person shooter. So let's take Half-Life again, for example, which ironically published by Sierra. It also became very popular to play games with your friends now in front of a computer. So Quake, Unreal Tournament, Counter-Strike. By the mid-90s, obviously, you also have a completely new and addictive genre coming out as well, the real-time strategy games. So you got Warcraft, Command & Conquer, Mm -hmm. Dune, Starcraft, Total Annihilation, Age of Empires. There was a lot of strategy games coming out now as well. Sierra developer Lorian Cole said that in 2003, her belief was that the high cost of development hurt adventure games. They are just too art sensitive and art is expensive to produce and to show. Some of the best adventure games were criticized they were just too short. Action adventure or adventure role playing games can get away with reusing a lot of the art and stretching the gameplay. Yes, and traditional adventure games became just too difficult to propose as new titles. Ron Gilbert even wrote in 2005, From first-hand experience, I can tell you that if you even utter the words adventure game in a meeting with a publisher, you can just pick up your spiffy concept art and leave. You'd get a better reaction by announcing that you have the plague. (laughs) (laughs) That is so sad, though. And in 2012, Tim Shaver, LucasArts game designer of Full Throttle, Broken Age, Grim Fandango, and actually one of your favorite games, Psychonauts. Psychonauts. Yeah. Um, He also said, if I were to go to a publisher right now and pitch an adventure game, they'd laugh in my face. How dare anyone laugh at Tim Schafer's face? I know. But you know what? In hindsight, some of the best point-and-click games were actually coming out around this time of the slow downfall as well. So uh, if I uh, take some examples, uh, Toonstruck from 96, Mm -hmm. Blade Runner came out in 97, Sanitarium came out in 98. They were really, really strong, solid games, and they were not during the what you might call the golden age of games anymore. It's true. It's because it's not by LucasArts or Sierra, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In Europe, the genre very much continued to be a very viable proposition, although on a much smaller scale, to be honest. For example, Norwegian studio Funcom's The Longest Journey arrived in 99 to very critical acclaim, Also, French firm Microids enjoyed a similar success with the Siberia series just three years later. Also, in Germany, where the distribution of violent games is always very, very strictly controlled, Mm -hmm. point-and-click adventure games were massively popular over there, and that naturally led to 
German game developers making point-and-click games. So they got the Book of Unwritten Tales, for I example. I love that game. Yeah, right. Fantastic two games there. And Secret Files of Tunguska. They all used high-resolution CGI visuals to superb effect. And they created immersive experience while remaining true to the core mechanics of the game genre. They weren't compromising from being mouse-controlled, even though they were in a 3D realm now. A minor resurgence actually occurred when the Nintendo DS was released back in 2004 as well. Because with the stylus and touchscreen, having two-screen design, it's lending itself well to bring point-and-click games to life. Such as Hotel Dusk, Room 215, Ace Attorney series, which is really big. Objection! <laughs> Take that! Take that, yes. Um, trace memory and re-release of Broken Sword as well. Also, with smartphones, we have also seen a lot of re-releases of popular point-and-click games. Um, although probably it's more of a swipe and tap rather than point-and-click, but still, it's a lot of old-school point-and-click games being re-released on smartphones. So where are we at with adventure games nowadays? So after the point-and-click uh, downfall, I wouldn't really call it a downfall. They're just not particularly popular and mainstream anymore, but there's still point-and-click games out there. I'll mention some examples just a little bit later on. But adventure games, we started off with text adventures. They turned into graphic adventure games. They turned into point-and-click games. But now we have, it seems like, two separate branches of adventure games running in parallel. So one of the two branches is called narrative games. And the narrative games are so-called because you've got different branches in the narrative that the game can take depending on what you choose to do inside of the game. Very often these choices are made during the duress of a time limit that you have to do in a quick time event. And that will affect the game's plot to different degrees, but sometimes even the small, innocent-looking choices that you make can affect the entire course of the game all the way until the end. These games, however, they lack a little bit in terms of the exploration that you got from the old point-and-click games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a little bit less about exploring the world as you see fit and using items that you've gained along the way. It's a little bit more about there's some dialogue and then you get a very small confined area that you can explore once and then once you've complete that part you do not go back to it it carries on you may get a quick time event with some action scenes cutscenes happening and it's kind of that formula over and over again it should come to no surprise that one of the big influences in the narrative adventure game genre was Telltale Games, a game developer founded by former LucasArts employees that wanted to continue making adventure games. The company was founded in 2004, and they started off with making some games that was previously under the LucasArts IP. So they started off with making a Summon Max sequel, mm -hmm. a Monkey Island sequel, and then it slowly branched out into other IPs, uh, such as Jurassic Park and Back to the Future. In 2012, they had a really big, massive commercial hit, which I imagine was most players' exposure to their first time seeing a narrative-driven adventure game. That mm -hmm. was the Walking Dead game. The Walking Dead game was really successful, and it shows off all of the classic narrative-driven game concepts that I just explained. Thanks to that success, they would get a lot of other games under their belt as well. So they also made uh, Batman games, Borderlands, Wolf Among Us, Game of Thrones, 
and they're currently also in the middle of releasing the Expanse. It wasn't just Telltale Games though. Again, we're going to Europe now who had a massive love for adventure games too and we've got a French company called Quantic Dreams that make a lot of these narrative-driven games. Uh, so they made Fahrenheit, for example, also called Indigo Prophecy, mm -hmm. Heavy Rain, Beyond Two Souls, <laughs> and Detroit Become Human. Also, another French company is called Don't Not, who make the Life is Strange series. And the British game developer Supermassive Games, uh, they're making Until Dawn, The Quarry, and The Dark Pictures Anthology. So the narrative adventure games are very much alive at the time of recording. And the second branch of adventure game, Walking Simulators. Walking Simulator games are really interesting because um, in contrary of the narrative games, it is actually quite heavily focused on the exploration part of it as well. So they heavily focus on the stories, often with mystery or horror elements, in which you can explore, walk around, and have a look at items, reading letters, reading books that's um, basically on the table. Yeah, most of them can be completed uh, very quickly though as well. Not all of them, but a lot of them, they're like maybe like a couple of hours long, and that's, that's all you get, kind of, yeah? I guess the examples of these games are What Remains of Edith Finch, Firewatch, Gone Home, The Stanley Parable. Yeah, it seems like uh, the narrative games, they took the plot from the adventure game mm -hmm. uh, genre And then the walking simulators, they took the exploration and it, it's almost split into two different camps, but they both enable a little bit extra. So the narrative-driven games, it lends itself a little bit easier to have a little bit of action involved. So we played the Borderlands Telltale games, for example. Yeah, right? that's true. And they, there's a lot of action in there sometimes. I mean, of course, all you do is quick time events at the end of the day. But at least you've you've got that kind of element still going on in your game. A little bit of excitement. Your heartbeat might change pace once in a while. Whereas the walking simulators, it is all very laid back. Take your time. Explore the world. Nothing can harm you. Nothing can touch you. But the plot is revealed just almost too slowly sometimes. Because it doesn't really progress linearly, I guess. You know, you may find a cabin in the woods and you walk in and yeah. you may read the letter on the sofa first or you may find the videotape first and put it into the TV or you may get a dream sequence by walking into a bedroom. It's um, not catered towards the experience for the player too much. Uh, the player just kind of goes along and sees what happens and connects the dots by himself, you might say. So player one, let me just tell you one more time, point and click games are not dead. They're still here for you to enjoy. You just need to know where to look around. Mm -hmm. They used to be massive because they used to be those big technical showcases for the computers. So they had a lot of colors, big sprites, animated, full motion video, voice acting. The limitation of the gameplay allowed the stories and the technical presentation to shine. All you wanted to do is tell a story, collect some items, and use them items in a world. And that is what allowed these point-and-click games to flourish so massively. They allowed us to really see the cutting edge of technology at the time in terms of a beautiful plot and some really interesting characters that were developing along with us as we play the games. Point-and-click games are not dead, and if you need any uh, shout-outs for what's uh, still in the market, Thimbleweed Park... Kentucky Route Zero, Gemini Rue, Techno Babylon, 
They're just some of the examples of point-and-click games that are still out to this very day. So, thank you for joining us on our adventure of point-and-click games. We traveled from real-life mammoth cave exploration and text-only adventures to the modern day. And new episodes of Gaming History Club are released every second Wednesday, so make sure you subscribe and follow us on our social media. Don't forget to say hi to us by visiting our website, gaminghistory.club, and let us know what topics you would like to hear. Or you can just share your favorite video game stories with us. Yeah, please reach out to us, even if it's just to come say hello, we will definitely reply to you. Fasten your seatbelt and drift back in on our next episode for more Gaming History Club. See ya!